Hello, this is Dan Hausman with the Novel Cohorts podcast. I am here with Craig Lipset, and uh, we have some exciting stuff to talk about. Um, so, Craig, I uh, figured you can introduce yourself. You've you've been involved in lots of real-world data projects and R and D. You know, what what got you interested in real-world data? And uh, tell us a bit about your background. Sure, sure. Let's see. So, in, I'll I'll start with the second half. So, in terms of background, I was most recently the head of clinical innovation at Pfizer. I left there in 2019 and have my own advisory practice right now working with pharma and biotech, with growth companies and tech companies, with investors, all around those that are looking to bring new solutions and approaches for clinical trials and drug development. I'm on the faculty at uh, Rutgers University in, the, uh, in health informatics. I teach in their graduate school. And I'm on the faculty at the University of Rochester in the Center for Health and Technology. So what led me to this uh, interest around real world data actually is a different side of my backstory, which is my own personal journey as a patient. I'm a patient with pulmonary sarcoidosis. It's a rare pulmonary condition. And um, during the course of my journey as a patient, started to find some 15 years ago, the value and importance of my own aggregating of my own personal health data along the way, making sure that at every step of the journey, I was making sure that I had access to my electronic health data, my imaging data, biopsies, and so on. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I knew there would be value in that for me, and there proved to be, just in terms of how I was managing my time as a patient. I brought a lot of that experience into my work in R&D when I was in clinical research at Pfizer, as well as at a small venture-backed biotech company before then. Certainly influenced a lot of my thinking and appreciation for not only the impact and the value of diverse data around an individual patient, but also around the impact and power of the patient when they're in control over that data and have the ability to share. Awesome. So, I mean, it sounds like you you got your fingers in a lot of different places and a huge background. Um, you know, I know you've done a lot with R&D innovation and, and you're really interested in clinical trials. Um, how do you see real-world data intersecting with clinical trials? Well, it's a great question. And, and I think it's, uh, it's misleading when sometimes people post about this battle of real-world data versus randomized clinical trials. And will real-world data replace the need for randomized clinical trials? We always have to keep in mind most of our clinical trials are for investigational medicines for which there is no real world data. They're not approved. They're not on the market. So what is that role for real world data in the clinical development and the drug development in the clinical trial process? Well, I think it starts in how we can use that data to help improve the way we're designing and planning our studies, whether it's testing protocol feasibility, optimizing studies, improving how we select investigator sites, and improving how we're able to potentially find individuals who may be eligible for our studies. I think the impact for real-world data then starts to trickle into study conduct. As we think about the ways that we can replace our outdated approaches for data capture, Still today, the vast majority of clinical trial data is captured by having a physician or a study coordinator enter data into an electronic case report form, data that already existed in its source someplace else. It's really 
very little difference today from how we did it 30 years ago, where they were transcribing the data onto paper case report forms. Today, they're mostly just entering it into electronic case report forms. But the opportunity for us to source our data electronically from real world data sources can be extremely powerful in terms of bringing better quality, better efficiency and a lower cost into our trials. I think there are opportunities for real world data to improve our engagement with patients in studies as we think about strategies to include the patient in that data flow and to make it bilateral so that any of the data we're collecting from a patient in the trial, we're able to give back to them. But there are some additional real world data use cases in clinical development today that are a little more on the edge, but also very exciting, whether that means our ability to use synthetic control arms and start to reduce or even potentially eliminate the need for patients to be randomized to control arms in a study by leveraging existing real world data rather than randomizing everybody in a one-to-one -one way where half the patients we're finding for our studies won't even get access to the new medicine. We can imagine how we can pull that forward even further and we're already seeing ways that real world data can then be used for a medicine that is approved to be able to support new labels and potentially then eliminate the need for a clinical trial, but only when the drug is already approved and we're able to get access to real world data to see if there is a new indication where there's enough evidence of efficacy and safety to support a new label. So, so these are, that's an awesome tour de force of real world data applications and in, in, in studies. Um, I'm curious if you're, you've seen things that are getting great traction or any interesting projects you're involved today with um, and just give us the basic concept. So, you know, things that are not just the potential, but the actual implementation of some of these concepts. I think that the most practical space that we're seeing real world data in the context of our clinical trials today is that very first use case around planning and designing for our studies. More and more pharma organizations are heavily resourcing their feasibility and optimization groups in their development organizations with a mix of clinical people and data scientists. More and more, that part of the organization is becoming extremely data hungry, whether leveraging EMR data, claims data, historical um, study performance data, competitive intelligence data, patient insights, a tremendous variety of data, real world and otherwise, that organizations want to bring together to make sure that the study that they're launching is the right study, that it's designed right the first time. Too many clinical trials go live only to then wind up pausing to have a protocol amendment to correct things that probably could have been preventable. Those delays cost millions of dollars, both in terms of the delay, as well as the direct cost associated with all the, all the different resubmissions that are required for all the sites around the world. And so getting it right the first time is worth a lot of money. And people are investing there and leveraging that access to diverse real world data coupled with the right know-how in their organizations to be able to use that data to tune and optimize their studies and to hopefully select the right sites and locations around the world in which to run those studies. So here at Gratitude, we spend a lot of time trying to free up data like free text notes, genomics, um, radiology data. 
Have you seen anything interesting in the, in the advanced data space that people are doing with that data or things you think people want to do within um, life sciences sponsored organizations? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Dan. And I can think of two areas that jump to mind. Certainly some want to be able to use that data for research purposes beyond a prospective clinical trial, whether it's around understanding um, patient journey, natural history of disease, or the ability to explore and try to identify new types of endpoints and measurements, whether predictive or otherwise, to help to understand why some patients may respond differently, to help to identify new ways that we can measure patient outcomes. But I think we're also trying to find ways in the context of these studies to reduce or eliminate redundant data entry, to allow us to source our study data more directly from the place in which it was originally captured. I use this word source deliberately. In the regulatory lexicon, this is what we call electronic source data. It has a name. It has a name because the regulators have written guidance documents supporting this type of a data flow. But for it to work, we have to have access to it and we have to be able to structure it along the way because the source data may live in the clinical world in a highly unstructured way, but our clinical trial data sets, they're really clean and they're tightly structured. And so at some point for that to work, we do need the processes and the validated tools that can help us to map that data. Great. Um, and, and, you know, I think we talked about what's happening today where there's good traction and um, you know, supporting a lot of trial feasibility and understanding the planning for trials. What, what do you think is the edge? What, what's the things that are, you know, far out there, but, but maybe can become real soon? I would say that the edge for many is the idea that we could really reduce or eliminate the need for human volunteers to participate prospectively in trials. And what are the ways that we can reduce the burden on patients, accelerate development programs, or reduce cost by leveraging existing data, leveraging artificial intelligence coupled with that existing data? Examples here are ones like I started to hint at earlier. We can start with control arms and start to explore if we're able to reduce the number of patients in a control arm so that we're not randomizing one-to-one. -one. When we talk to patients, this is a huge win. When patients know that, there's, that they're less likely to get the control arm in a trial, and keep in mind if, if your listeners aren't familiar, most studies don't have a placebo. Most studies have a control, an active control, meaning patients would still get the standard care that they would probably get from their doctor. But the reason why they're taking the burden of participating in a research study is usually to try to get access to that new investigational medicine. And if we're able to reuse um, uh, real world data to reduce or eliminate control arms, if we're able to use um, AI coupled with that data so that we can create synthetic patients or digital twins of the patients in our active arms, I think things start to get very exciting. And we can maybe start to envision more and more ways that we can be creative using data to continue to reduce the number of patients needed for our trials. A win for patients, a win for sponsors. So, so Craig, I love that you're so patient-centric and, and the reason why you, you got involved with real-world data and clinical development is you yourself are a patient. Um, you know, what do you think the patient experience might be like 
in the future, if we can really connect back to them, like how could they experience a different world than they experienced five years from now when they're really linked into the, the program of, of clinical development? I think we're asking patients more and more to share their data more and more. And that's not a bad thing. Patients to me are the ideal aggregator of their personal health data. Um, I might have data that lives in an EMR at one hospital and more data at another. I might have claims data in different environments. And you could run around behind my back and try to mash that all together. Or you can just come and ask my permission and invite me to aggregate my data from its different sources and ask my permission to share it. What's nice is, thanks to initiatives like the uh, Health and Human Services API that was announced in the spring, I, as a patient, am going to have more and more access to my data in hopefully more and more consistent ways. But what's also nice is that we've seen pretty consistently that around nine out of 10 patients when asked to share their data for research are willing to. They just want to do so on their own terms as it relates to privacy and the protection of their personal preferences. And so as I think about that next step around patient engagement and their data and studies, first, it's around coming to me and inviting me to share my data. And second, it's around making that theme of data sharing a bilateral experience. I'm happy to share with you but you as a research sponsor should share what you learn back with me. If there's other data or insights that you're able to capture, if there are algorithms or diagnostic data that are generating more data about me, where do I click to get access to that data? Now, sometimes that's not going to happen during the trial itself. If it's a blinded randomized study, we have to manage the integrity of that. But eventually I should get access to my own data just as I can in healthcare through various patient portals. And so to me, that's the direction we're heading. More um, data aggregation centered around the patient and more effort to make that a bilateral experience. So, you know, I feel like this patient driving their own research initiative has been an idea that's been around for 20 years and people keep promoting that it's just around the corner. Um, why hasn't it surfaced yet? And you know, maybe I'll add into two years ago, people were talking about Bitcoin and blockchain. And what happened to all those companies that were gonna solve the world by giving people digital currencies in order to participate? You know, why aren't we there yet? I think that there is a stepwise journey that we have to take here. And it's hard for us to leap from step one to step three. I would say that step one is around um, is around transparency and access. I should be able to access all of my data wherever it resides, and I should be able to uh, share that data um, when and how I wish. That's step one, and I think, I think we're really getting there. I think step two to me is around permissions, that if you want access to my data, you should have to ask my permission to do so. And if you are accessing my data without my explicit permission, I should have transparency in order to be able to see that. I get that with my credit report right now, right? I can log in to view my credit report. I can lock access to it if I don't want others to be able to see it. And I can see audit trails in terms of who has accessed that credit report. Why can't I do that with my personal health data? My health data, which in many cases, 
Well, unfortunately, in the United States today is the number one source of bankruptcy is the cost of me getting my health care. And so the data that comes from it um, is, is precious to me, right? But the third step to that journey to me is kind of where you were just pointing to, Dan, which is if people are going to monetize my data, I should be able to participate. Transparency and access, me getting my permission, and then once I have access to my data and can share it where I wish, and once we have agreement together that permission is the right way to go, adding on monetization where it's appropriate just makes sense. Um, in, a, in a free market, it just makes sense. And it doesn't mean that there needs to always be dollars attached to every transaction, but simply as a part of permissioning data, I think that's going to naturally evolve and it's not a bad thing. So, you know, I guess just in talking about this and, I, and I, I'm aware of this debate that comes up in real world data, which is, should you always be asking permission or is it okay to use what we've been doing for the last 20 years or so, which is a HIPAA waiver to allow access at scale to patients' data or should every person in the world be asked for every bit of data? Um, and the reason why I'm asking is, you know, what's your thought about how we can navigate the transition? Cause it's almost like the transition of fee for service to value-based care. It's that complex, right? I have yet to see a headline in the news where there is a leak or an announcement that somebody is using data without permission where society celebrates. Anytime there is an instance where data has been used without permission, those people become the villains in the story. And my biggest fear is that the Facebook Cambridge Analytica headline that's waiting out there in our future is the one that says, your personal health data is a part of a deep web market that you don't even know exists, where there are keys to access your data that others have in order to monetize it, and you don't have a copy of the key, and you didn't even know the key was out there. And so to me, this is an incumbent on the buyers in our marketplace today, life sciences companies and others, to seize control and define the future state that they want as buyers. We see other large buyers in retail exert their buying power and authority. Walmart is a great example of this. If they want certain behaviors, they are the big buyer and they get to decide that and they can shift the marketplace. So I'll give an example of what the buyers in this market could do right now. In instances where two data sets are otherwise equivalent and both available to answer a research question, set a policy that you will always opt to the data set that has the most transparency and permission attached to it. Signal to investors, innovators, entrepreneurs, data scientists out there that if two options are available, you as the buyer will choose the option that has more permissions. We don't need a government mandate for that to happen. And it's an opportunity for the environment and the buyers who lead this environment to make the change that makes sure that our future is sustainable, that the data that we're relying on for business, for healthcare delivery, for improved patient outcomes, isn't going to dry up that this assumption that the data flow will last forever isn't going to work against us. And instead, by defining a policy that lets the buyers set the terms 
doesn't mean that you're getting cut off from the data that exists today. We can say in instances where two otherwise equivalent have to be available. So if it's not available, you're still okay today. But I think investors, entrepreneurs, and others need to know that the buyers care, because if they do, they'll seize that opportunity and the market will meet this. Awesome. Um, I'll change gears to COVID-19 because it's been big this year and I'd really be interested in your thoughts. You know, how does COVID-19 affect this space of real world data and clinical trials? And has it moved it forwards, backwards? What's your thought? Well, certainly, um, there's been a lot of shift in how we're running our studies this year. Our prospective clinical trials have been relying much more on remote monitoring, on telemedicine, just as we've seen in healthcare. Quite honestly, just as we've seen in all aspects of our lives, business, retail, shopping. It's this mix of we do a little in person, we do a little online, and clinical trials have certainly evolved in that direction as well. As we see our studies start to shift more and more to locations outside of the clinic, when patients are able to participate more and more from home or other locations, we start to rely even more on finding other sources for our study data. We're not going to be able to rely as much on having a physician-patient encounter in the office where the data is going to be scribed into that case report form. And so we call these types of studies decentralized trials as we start to move the center away from just a, a hospital or a clinic. But as we shift that center more and more to the home, we start to rely on far more diversity in how our data is sourced. That could mean sensors, wearables, remote monitoring devices, electronic blood pressure cuffs in the home, it also might mean our dependence on even more from other types of real world data sources and how we might start to tokenize patients to be able to access and source more of their uh, real world data from various places. So I, I think that certainly during uh, COVID-19, we've seen this shift in how studies are being run. I think that the shift in general around telemedicine has been certainly catalyzed by changes in policy and reimbursement, breaking down many of the barriers that existed around, um, around state, telemed uh, state medical licenses, as an example. I don't see anything similar on the real world data side, but what I have seen is certainly the tremendous spirit of collaboration and sharing that's been happening as we work together to address this global pandemic. Just as we see in initiatives like Operation Warp Speed and how we're developing vaccines and therapeutics faster than ever before, I think many people are starting to wonder, what's the next Operation Warp Speed? What's the next big data collaboration challenge we're going to go after? COVID-19 was a great catalyst for us all to work together this year. What about Alzheimer's? What about that next disease area with tremendous unmet medical need that could be the next space that we light up the same spirit of collaboration and urgency together? That's awesome. Um, great. Well, I think that, you know, you've covered a lot of space. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what things, having thought over our talk today, do you think people should take away? You know, what, what do you want to leave them with as, as key thoughts to think about and maybe even to act on? The opportunities for using diverse data 
in the context of clinical trials and drug development programs is vast. There are some that are right at your fingertips that organizations can use today to better design and plan their studies. There are others that the regulators are very receptive to engaging around. Certainly we're seeing that this year. Uh, we're seeing it in the words from leaders like Amy Abernathy and others in terms of embracing innovative data sources as a part of how we're developing our studies to share those plans with the regulators and to really think through our process for assuring data integrity and otherwise. I would say that for those that are looking at other options for um, use cases around real world data, to seriously consider ways to build policies that put a priority on permissioning and start to lay the framework so that together we can have confidence in the sustainable future for accessing real world data to improve the lives of patients. Craig, thanks so much for taking time with me today. And uh, you know, I hope a lot of the things that you've been talking about come to pass and come to pass soon. So thanks, thanks so much for having me, Dan. Thank you. All right. Bye. Catch you soon.